So Nick Hudson, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you back. Thank you very much. I think it's been nearly a year and a half since the the first time I was on. Yes. And as Tim said on a previous podcast, it feels both a very short amount of time and a very long amount of time at the same time, which is so weird. Time time seems to be both speeding up and slowing down at the same time. It's very, very odd. I sense a disturbance in the force. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the events do emerge and go from zero to 100 at uh, a breakneck speed, um, causing necks to snap as everybody's attention gets diverted from uh, one decaying narrative to one ascendant narrative, you know, ridiculous so, really. So for people who aren't familiar with you, Nick, would you like to give a quick praise as to sort of what, what you and, and Pandata are, are, about, are all about? Sure, I mean, Panda was originally set up in um, the, the second quarter of 2020 in response to the emerging pandemic response in South Africa, uh, we took exception to the, this uh, notion that one size fits all in pandemic policy response and that every nation in the world had to uh, be locked down and um, subjected to all the various malarchic elements of the, of the policy response. And we did a piece of work just showing that under fairly reasonable assumptions, the consequences of the lockdown from a public health perspective would be much greater than the actual consequences of the disease itself. And we built on that. We, we went and you know got that published in various, or at least reported on in various newspapers and so on, and came to the attention of the broader, broader public. And our work really just grew from there. We began to look at the effectiveness of the the measures from a data point of view. We took a a view that with all this data that was swimming around, it was quite ridiculous that nobody was actually asking the question, well, are these measures working? Are they showing any beneficial effect? And the organization began to grow. Around about October of that first year, we realized that we were up against a brick wall and that nothing that was being done in South Africa was really being organized at the behest of any local authority it was, it was all being administered from outside the country. There'd been a general collapse in, in the sovereign independence of, of the country in terms of its choices in, in response to the emergent pandemic. And we decided to internationalize, which we did fairly rapidly. Uh, within a few months, we had membership in more than 30 countries. A uh, very strong scientific advisory board. We attracted scientists into the group from a variety of fields. We've always believed in a in a multidisciplinary, open science approach to to dealing with the pandemic. And then of late, we have uh, expanded our reference beyond the nav- narrow confines of the pandemic to consider a, a role as a sense maker in the broader political, economic, and social context, because whereas a year ago, if you tried to even suggest that uh, COVID was a manifestation of some political agenda, people would shut up, uh, shut you down and stop listening to you immediately because that was thought to be some kind of weird conspiracy hack theory. But I think nowadays there's much broader accept- acceptance of the principle that there there is clearly um, a political agenda at work that uh, many elements of lockdown and uh, the COVID policy response are actually serving an agenda that has nothing to do with public health, a virus or an epidemic. And so we have um, expanded 
to start a project called the PESEL Initiative. It's an acronym that, you know, the first three letters are politics, economics, and sociology. And um, it, it covers the, the, the broader setting of the emergence of this completely um, novel set of responses that contradicted every single public health textbook and standing pandemic respiratory virus guideline. How did these things come to be rolled out in lockstep all around the world, despite the fact that they'd been, in most cases, advised against? Mm. Even in the World Health Organization's 2019 updated respiratory virus guideline, they explicitly ruled out lockdown. So where do these things come from? And what's the broader political agenda that we're working with? Those are the questions that we are increasingly grappling with. And um, it's, it's a very interesting time. I would I would give you credit. Um, there are there are two insightful things that happened to me in I suppose half probably part way through halfway through maybe 2020, and the first of them that I, I remember was reading Michael P. Sanger's account on in the Tablet magazine in in the U.S. of uh, effectively lockdown being a Chinese psyop, being sort of yeah. Chinese psychological operations, and the the the, the, the I, I came across it via Twitter. And then read the article, and I'd say it probably took me about a week to process. So my initial reaction was that can't be true. And then, after a while of just sort of cogitating on it, it seemed well, actually he's, he's probably right. And then, yep. so the scales then started to fall from my eyes. And the second time was probably the time that we spoke. So the time that we we had we had you on the pod, and it became abundantly clear to I think anyone that heard that that there was something rotten in the state of Denmark about COVID. So I would I would give you personally credit for having helped me to start to see the wood from the trees here. Um, I mean, let's go straight into the thick of it. What what do you think is really going on? So my my belief from the get go has been that there was it was clear that there was something going on because we were facing a, such a massive divergence between the media narrative and the emergent facts, and that included observations of that uh, propaganda that was emerging, you know, the falling men in the videos and that kind of thing. Um, th those were clearly uh, artifacts, fabrications. And the fact that none of the world's intelligence agencies seemed to be lifting a finger to address the fact that there was all this, that the world was so awash in propaganda seemed to me to a very disturbing observation. And so, you know, the, 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 in other words, they were complicit in it. Yes, that's what it, that was the, the inference you had to draw. And um, <clears throat> I kind of come from a, 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 an environment, a, a, a personal culture of having studied and watched society change. I'd lived all over the world and seen America change, seen England change, um, seen South Africa change. Um, and was just alive to these, the drift in our cultural values. Um, so I think that made me particularly sensitive to the, the, the kind of, if you like, securocratic aspect to lockdowns and the COVID response and to the emergent cancel culture around it and suppression of dissenting perspectives, the complete absence of debate in the public square, the unwillingness of politicians to face hostile questioning from 
the few journalists who were asking hostile questions. And that set me off finding people who were asking the same questions. And so we've now got a collection of them together in Panda. And the view that we have is that the whole uh, pandemic policy response phenomenon is, is very much connected to movements in the direction of what, what can broadly speaking be described as centralization. Uh, people talk in terms of new world orders and fourth industrial revolutions and building back better and uh, uh, great resets and all of these concepts. Now, whatever you know, particular flavor any particular person ends up cleaving to, um, what they all have in, what they all have in common is an erosion of local decision rights, whether that's read at the level of. Uh, uh, a community or at the level of a sovereign nation, there is a lot of talk about these this long list of global crises which demand a global response and for which purpose a variety of international organizations have been set up and massively funded. And as part of that whole drift, we see the emergence of such phenomena as programmable central bank digital currencies, um, and digital IDs as really key elements of that whole drift. And the danger is not necessarily those technologies per se. Uh, they're in, in some sense, they're inevitable. But the fact that they're being introduced into a, a kind of legal and constitutional vacuum where we do not have the protections set up to make sure that such tools are not abused by governments or, or indeed by supranational organizations. And the real propensity to, to conduct such abuse has been on full display in recent months. We saw Canada shutting the bank accounts of peaceful protesters in the truckers' convoy. And we've seen moves to eliminate cash in Australia so the stuff is real and it is being done, we believe, in a kind of legal and social vacuum because media is not talking about it. Nobody's raising the, the red flag saying, hold on a second, this is a tool which if not articulated correctly, if not controlled by a rigid set of systemic design features and legal um, parameters could be used by would-be dictators to completely trample on democratic processes and human agency and human rights. The drift towards the vaccine passport is one such manifestation, almost pointing us in the direction of a social credit system in the style of China. And so we see everywhere this talk and this tendency to convert every single local problem into some kind of sub-chapter of a broader global problem that must be solved in Davos or Geneva or New York or whatever the case may be. And that is a fundamentally flawed project in our opinion. Complex systems never lend themselves to being centrally managed or managed with a design kind of mentality in mind. They respond much better to a multiplicity of evolutionary responses of trial and error on the margins 
seeing what works in the real world, uh, trying multiple things and ditching the ones that don't work. So this, the very attempt to kind of manage these complex phenomena, whether we are talking about an epidemic or society or the climate or the immune system, um, the, those are fundamentally flawed efforts and they, they, are, they fail at a basic epistemological level. And I, we, we believe that the, 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 the sort of situation with this project stems from a gross error, which is to assume that the existence of a greater level of information about all sorts of systems is equivalent to knowing how to manage them, and it's not. Do you draw any comfort from the fact that, or the suggestion perhaps, that every day more and more people are waking up to what's going on? So just as we're having a, if you like, great reset, we're having at exactly the same time a, a completely counter movement called the Great Awakening. Correct, I totally do. And um, that's what we want to play a role in uh, as Panda. Um, there's, there's palpable uh, movement in that direction in the last few months. In some countries, we've noticed a setback. There was a growing awareness, for example, in the UK around the extent to which the COVID uh, policy had been a complete disaster and uh, the, the, the object of a great deal of political manipulation, behavioral science tools being deployed against the population by the government, that kind of thing was becoming something that was creeping into uh, a kind of more broadly distributed narrative. And then along came this completely fabricated crisis in Ukraine. You know, when I say, I'm not saying there isn't a kinetic war on the ground in Ukraine, as, as I've heard some people say in kind of <laughs> rather extreme fashion. But it's to say that the, the, es the mutual escalation of the crisis was the fabrication. That's, mm -hmm. that's a completely unnecessary crisis. It, it, it was quite patently provoked and orchestrated. And yet it's in the same way that lockdown was propagandized. Now this conflict is being propagandized and turned into the new, here's a new shiny toy that we want you to focus your attention on while the COVID narrative collapses in the background, while the vaccination mandate narrative collapses in the background to, to take your eye off that very nasty climb down and unwind. Here's a new thing to talk about. So not, not, not to sound not to sound overly overly simplistic, but how do we stop the bastards? I mean, I, th I think the, the the key thing is to continue speaking out. We 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 all have to just you know weather the storm of allegations of whatever you know whatever the the spirit the, the 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 phrase of the time is. You know, COVID denier was the first one. Then it was. Um, you're a you're a, a granny killer. Then it was uh, you're an anti-vaxxer. Anti-vaxxer, yeah, and then a conspiracy theorist. Anti-vaxxer was a big one. Uh, yeah. Conspiracy theorist. All of these terms, you just weather the storm because they go away. They, they're ridiculous constructs, all of them. And so you, you just keep going and keep on speaking out and keep on converting people because the direction of travel for people who are converted is one way. Mm. Nobody has the scales lifted off their eyes and turns around and uh, says, you know what, I'm going to unsee that mm. and go back to believing that our governments were acting in our best interests when they locked us down and closed our schools. We've had a, yes, a, I'm positive. 
we've had a controlled demolition of of much of the Western, well, much of the the global economy and and much of the monetary system. Do you think it'll yeah. be possible to have a controlled to engineer a controlled demolition of this uh, narrative, this this sort of COVID narrative? Well, they're certainly trying very hard. I mean, we're seeing scientists in a variety of countries do complete 180s with respect to the bulk of the the policy response, you know, turning against masks and contact tracing and asymptomatic testing and any number of things. They haven't let go of the vaccination narrative yet. That That's, I think, still coming because yeah, the, the bulk of what we see suggests that this was a, this is a failed project, the vaccination project. Um, and it's just a matter of time before it's all exposed and the full fraud behind the original manufacturer trials is more broadly understood. Um, so yeah, I think I think controlled demolition is what people are are on on the other side are aiming for, but I'm not too sure that they're going to get it. Um, yeah. Uh, why do you think they were trying to do that? Why? What? What do you think the the reasons behind this whole process is? It just to control the population? Uh, there always there's always uh, a segment of society that seeks to exert control over other people, and I think we can talk about the timing of this COVID phenomenon. It came into a world where there were various uh, efforts being made along the lines of cryptocurrencies and decentralized finance or DeFi. Um, technologies were being developed that I think threatened hegemonic interests, threatened governments. And so that maybe talks to the timing of it. But it's a very naive person who believes that the world doesn't always contain people who would be dictators, who would control the lives of others. Um, this is a, con a constant through history. And um, so I don't find it like a terribly uh, surprising phenomenon. It's been shocking to be on the receiving end of it and to see how the propaganda has been successful in psychosing huge swathes of populations all over the world. But it's also maybe a manifestation of the success of those early decentralization efforts that has made it possible for people like us to connect quite quickly in the in the process of the pandemic and to begin sharing information and perspectives and improving our understanding of what was going on. That sense-making role has been greatly enabled by um, technology. And despite relentless efforts to censor people and to suppress contrary or dissenting narratives, they have not been able to silence us and they have not been able to prevent us from learning at a very rapid rate about what is really going on and getting a, a closer correspondence with the reality of the situation on a continuous basis. And you know, Panda's gonna can continue doing that. We're gonna be making sense in a broader context. The whole, the whole absurdity of lockdown seems to me to be completely naive that you can't just basically force half the world or more than half the world into house arrest without expecting some of them to ask questions about why that's happened. That was exactly what yeah. I was going to ask about, because surely there are people like you, there are people like us asking questions and, you know, if Twitter shuts you down, now Get has turned up again. Surely it was doomed to fail because 
the truth is the truth and ultimately that will out. Yes, I, I think it, it's, it's, it's less about correspondence with the truth. Uh, or no, you know, the, the, I suppose at a basic, at a very axiomatic level, that is the underpin. But where these globalists will run into problems is that nobody has solved the problem of how to manage complex phenomena from in a, in a centralized way with beneficial outcomes. That problem has never been solved. And prob- for, you know, for all intents and purposes, unlikely ever to be solved. It's, it's, so always, been a, it's to, always been a decentralized solution called the free market. Correct. Correct. That was the, the only period in human history that where we saw sustained growth and human flourishing uh, improving from from generation to generation, you know, life life a quality of life going up all over the place, starvation rates going down, infant mortality rates going down. That only happened when the world was enjoying a, a, a system of governance that embraced decentralization, individual agency, human rights, and the, the attempt to roll all of that back. You, first of all, you have to be quite a Malthusian thinker to even want to go in that direction. But as we've discovered in the last couple of decades, there are plenty of Malthusian thinkers around, people who don't believe that progress will lead to solutions to problems that that we need to reverse the the, the, the arrow of time and go backwards, retrench, cut back in order to uh, put the world on what they call a, a sustainable footing. And those people fundamentally do not see knowledge creation and the generation of solutions to problems as itself being a sustainable process, which it very much is, but only under conditions of decentralization, freedom, liberty, democracy. On, on a technical level at Pandata, how do you go about getting good data? Because it must be very hard to do that. Um, I know in the UK, obviously, you've got the ONS, you've got Zoe, which is an independent um, board collecting data. But it, it, I can't imagine how hard it must have been to get data from all over the world and for it to be, you know, accurate and, uh, it, you know, you're able to analyze it. It must have been a huge task. Well, there, there were massive problems. So, for example, the, one of the things that went wrong at a very basic medical principle level was that all over the world, they began to describe anybody with a positive PCR test result as a case of COVID. Yeah. So even if they weren't diseased, they were said to have a disease. Um, and the, this this meant that any series, any data series involving so-called cases was from the outset uh, a flawed construct. And that, of course, spilt over to the deaths. And so we had to do our best with very messy data, trying to say, well, well, the same kind of mistakes being made everywhere. We can still do international comparisons and try and work out whether lockdowns are reducing cases or deaths, which they weren't. That was visible from very early on in May 2020. Lockdowns, if anything, have been pro-contagion. They've increased the disease burden and shifted it onto the vulnerable community rather than leaving it amongst the, the kids and young people who were never going to be susceptible to severe disease outcomes. Um, but, you know, beyond that, we had to wait for emergent um, all-cause mortality results, excess mortality studies, which are not plagued by categorization problems and so on. They, 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 they provide the ultimate answer to the global success of policies. 
And those numbers take time to emerge. And once they're emerged, you're left with the very tricky statistical problem of trying to at, 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 attribute um, causality to the, to the excess deaths that have been observed in some parts of the planet. And I remind people all the time that Sweden closed its 2020 and 2021, the two-year period of, their, of the, the pandemic, with you know, negligible excess mortality despite the fact that they very, very famously refused to participate in much of the clown world of the, the COVID response. And so that's your benchmark, um, is basically uh, business as usual, no, no significant excess mortality if you didn't do much at all. And uh, any worse outcome than, than that, you must look to the policies that were implemented in order to explain. It doesn't help to say there were more COVID deaths and, and to attribute the deaths to COVID per se, because we know that the default is that COVID itself was not a sufficiently threatening disease to cause, um, to cause excess mortality. You had to be doing a whole lot of medical malpractice. Uh, iatrogenic deaths had to be featuring, and I, I mean iatrogenic there in, in the broader sense as not just relating to narrow medical settings, but broader public health settings. A lot of things had to be going wrong in order to see multiple nations achieving um, high excess mortality at the same time. And so that's our position is, well, how do we attribute the, the, this, this observed excess mortality around the world to the different elements of the policy response, whether it be the lockdowns or changes in basic approaches to early treatment of disease or um, you know, failure to continue with cancer screening programs or indeed rolling out vaccines to people who cannot possibly benefit from them because they're not at risk to the disease um, and yet suffer the consequences of the adverse events which are running at levels hitherto unseen in products that have been used on mass populations. And when I say unseen, I mean by orders of magnitude, not by, you know, a percent or two. Where is that data being uh, collected? Because the VERS system, I believe, in America is uh, a very difficult method to to collect the data. You, I think you've got to be a healthcare professional before anything gets logged in there. And, you know, it, it's uh, in itself, I think it has its problems. So how how are these sort of adverse reactions being monitored and um, verified? I mean, it must be a huge job just to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the answer is very badly. VAERS itself is not a bad system relative to what nations have. Um, it underreports by a factor of 10 to 20 times, depending on whether you're talking about, ad, uh, you know, adverse events or deaths. We can, there, there are ways you can tease that out. There's sort of every now and then you come across a database that records, records every instance of a certain type of, narrowly defined um, uh, illness or condition. And we can then look at the, the temporal correspondence between vaccination rollout and increases in the prevalence of that condition and infer from that uh, a rate for a very narrow condition, a prevalence rate for a very narrow condition as an adverse event and compare it to what is in the vaccine adverse events reporting system. And that gives us a sense of the underreporting that is taking place. And it's, it's significant. There is very definitely vast underreporting. But when you come to a country like South Africa, our, our um, vaccine RARA crew 
are making the ridiculous claim that there hasn't been a single uh, vaccine fatality in South Africa where we know anecdotally of many that are where it's implausible that they are not related to the vaccines. And then there's another problem which nobody's yet worked out how to solve, but we will. And that is that it seems with respect to these mRNA vaccines that many of the adverse events have quite a long tail. They're, they're you know, fulminating cancers that will only be detected many months into the future, that kind of story. How to link those back to the vaccine will be a, 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 you know, a very difficult statistical undertaking um, and would require a great deal of transparent data sharing by authorities who so far have been inclined to sweep things under the rug. So, you know, in the fullness of time, I have every faith that we will get to the bottom of these things. But right now, you're absolutely right. There's, uh, we, anybody who's trying to make sense of what's going on with the vaccines and the adverse events is thwarted at every turn. Would you say that the, um, the data from the ONS, though, is, is, is that not relatively open and, and accurate to a certain extent? There, there are significant categorization problems going on there. Professor Norman Fenton has written extensively on the subject and spoken extensively on the subject. We think that the initial efficacy signal that was given in the ONS data was false as a result of that miscategorization. Um, we haven't gotten to the bottom of exactly what the causal structure of the miscategorization was, but you see now with the evolution of the pass with the passing of time, that signal going away. Um, and and so we, we, we're in this position now where it appears that quite quickly the efficacy of the vaccines turns negative. Um, and so, yes, fair to say that there's maybe uh, more uh, discipline in the collection and publication of, of data in, in the UK than in a, in a great many other countries, but it's still flawed enough to uh, lead to a situation where the authorities are drawing incorrect inferences as a result of the data being miscategorized. Here in the UK, there aren't any restrictions. Well, certainly, well, actually, I say UK, I mean Eng England, obviously, Wales and Scotland still have got restrictions. But it, it, we're, we're effectively open. You can travel here without a PCR test. You can, um, you know, you can travel around. There are no restrictions at all. That hopefully is where the rest of the world will be going, and we're hopefully at the, you know, leading edge of it. Um, mm. If if that is the case, then you you what will what will pan pan data become? Will you continue to monitor the stats, um, or you you what what would be the strategy from here? Well, I think I think there's we all have a lot of work cut out for us for decades, um, and our, Panda's remit is not limited to data. Um, we've we've supported legal cases, marshalling the scientific papers, and providing technical support as amicus curiae in cases against various aspects of the policy, whether it's you know lockdown or uh, school closures, or in South Africa we have these bizarre alcohol bans. Um, uh, or, or vaccine mandates, um, vaccine approvals, approvals for the use in children. There are a huge number of legal cases that we're supporting, and there are constitutional cases that will take longer to evolve, you know, cases that will be in the courts for half a decade to a dec decade, which we will support as well. So, I mean, no, nobody can deny that this has been a, a world-changing event, 
a very badly managed one and that the ramifications of that bad management will echo down the decades, Panda will be there to uh, to shed light on that process and to, as I've said a few times, make sense of the world again. Do you think it'll be possible to uh, resolve the the situation in, in terms of media players or political players without bloodshed? It's a very good question. The longer the, the lying and propaganda persists, the less likely that scenario becomes. Um, I, the, the Arab Spring is your, is your guide, right? Because um, the, the, uh, conf- the confected inflationary food panic is now more or less upon us. I, I very much believe so. There are going to be shortages. And that will lead to very brittle political situations. It won't be the same in every place of the, on the planet. Um, that, that's kind of where the, this fantastical universe of the globalists is so you know, staggering. Um, they seem really to believe that you can bring about an economic retrenchment, a reduction in consumption and resource utilization at the same time that you hand out universal basic income or, or um, uh, some equivalent to, to sort of placate the masses. And I, I just fail to see how the, anybody with half a brain can accept that as an economic, a sound economic proposition. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of fantastical thinking that's gone on in the form of modern monetary and, and lockdowns, this idea that you can control a respiratory virus, you know, with non-pharmaceutical interventions. All of this was imaginary, fabric, fabricationary, uh, you know, fantastical thinking. And, and it's quite staggering how long they persist with it. I think that that is the kind of recipe for violent outcomes. And if we don't move people off that type of thinking in fairly short order, then the violent outcomes become more likely. The fact that that um, England is open, though, is is a is a you know a big step towards there being a non-violent outcome. I, I would th- thought if if I was living in Australia or Canada, I would be going completely out of my mind. Yeah, yeah. I, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Germany, these places have gone and jumped the shark. You know, they're in uh, a, a very strange uh, place. Uh, you know, we, we found ourselves in those countries, the, the, the extent of media control and narrative management of propaganda was so extreme that we found ourselves performing the role of introducing dissenting voices to each other because they had not found each other. Mm. You know, that was, that was the extent of their experience in their own societies that they were just so far behind the curve in connecting on a global or even a local basis that that was a role we had to perform in several countries and that's staggering it's frightening and it's hard in those countries to assess the extent of an emergent skepticism in the populations i I do fear that in some of them the skepticism is still running at very low levels whereas you know whereas in south africa and in the united states it's a substantial percentage of the population uh, and that, that is now in the position of calling bullshit on the whole narrative. Um, that's not, that cannot be said. 
for Australia or for Germany. You talk about the um, the impossibility of the the centralised command economy, the idea that you can just have a, a bunch of technocrats at the centre dictating how, how the world works. There's, there's a, a, a quote from Keynes, which I've, I've long been haunted by, um, from the, his essay, The Great Slump of 1930. We were not previously deceived, but today we've involved ourselves in a colossal muddle, having blundered in the control of a delicate machine, the working of which we do not understand. The result is that our possibilities of wealth may run to waste for a time, perhaps for a long time. Yeah. So yeah, that's quite, a, quite, quite ominous, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the fact that it came from the mouth of Keynes and not from Thomas Sowell is uh, instructive because he was a person who had, showed every tendency of wanting to intervene in, in economies, you know. So uh, very good words. You know, the, the fundamental confusion is it, it's, it, it's not for want of information that we are unable to manage centrally an economy. It's for want of explanations of how to do that. And those explanations are not sort of around the corner because of the presence of AI. No, they, they, they're, they're continually eluding us. And there's good reason to expect them to continue to elude us for the foreseeable future, you know. Um, it's not if the fact if you could measure every or you know collect a database of every single transaction in the world, every attribution of that transaction down to the level of the individuals involved and what was exchanged and so on, you you wouldn't be nowhere you'd be no closer to being able to manage an economy. That that requires a, a level of sophistication and decision making of analysis of trade offs and preferences that. Um, are not even, in some cases, com- competent to be articulated. Um, so it's it's a truly dreamlike notion, uh, a, a, a true self-delusion that these centralists at the WEF and its allied organizations are practicing. How, how do you think they've managed to win over so many politicians. Do you think the politicians in question that have basically acted as traitors to the the people who elected them for the, with the best of intentions? Do you think do you think people have been the politicians have been stupid, or do you think they've been coerced through bribes or blackmail or some other form of coercion? Well, I mean, I mean show me a politician who isn't quite excited at the prospect of having more power, more control. That would be my starting point. Touche. <laughs> yeah. And then the next one is if you look at the materials pumped out by, um, you know, the Atlantic Council and the WEF and the UN, they're, they're these very slick, slickly, slickly presented documents. Mm-hmm. My favorite whipping post is the, is the global risk report of the WEF, which, as far as I read, it consists of a list of fabricated global crises to which they only admit global solutions. But when you pick that document up and read it and just give it the slightest scratch, there is zero intellectual substance underlying it. Mm. They have a bunch of jargonesque buzzwords that they distribute in surveys to CEOs all around the planet who happen to get together in Davos once a year to rub shoulders with the good and the great and talk about their great future contribution to world peace, climate change, whatever the case may be, it's, it is, as an intellectual exercise, derisory. There is no substance there, 
lots of crazy diagrams. You know, they almost look like the nightmare of the, the quintessential conspiracy theorist, these diagrams, you know, lots of big problems on the page with dotted lines connecting this one to that one and the, you know, implying some kind of interaction or mutual relevance for those two problems. And it's really quite, it's shamefully inadequate work. Mm. Um, it's not, it doesn't pass muster as a serious document. And yet many people are fooled by it. And that's, that I think applies to politicians as well. If some or other great globalist is, is, you know, visits, jets in on his private jet and comes to show you his amazing vision of the future and his fancy chart, if you're dealing with the run of the mill politician who's quite attracted by the whole notion of increased power and control, they might not think too hard about whether what they're looking at is, is, a, is, a, is just a complete jargon-esque mess or something that has intellectual soundness to it. I can imagine then that they accord to it much greater structure and import than it deserves. Prior to the pandemic, you were involved in the financial markets. Do you think you will ever go back to the uh, the financial markets or is there just too much work to do? Will there be financial markets to go back to? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I still run a private equity fund. You know, that's that has never stopped. Um, wow. Okay. That, you that, may... that, thankfully, that is doing very well. Um, how many so hours? Is, how many hours sleep do you get? A night? Not, not, not nearly enough. It's been a long two years. Mm. Um, so that that continues, and I'm I, I'm still engaged there for the foreseeable future. Um, Financial markets, that's an interesting question and maybe time, for, you know, a topic of a show by itself. But I suspect that the, the virtues of being listed have uh, diminished dramatically over the, the course of the last decade and will continue to diminish. This whole movement in the direction of ESG, which is another intellectual mess. Blind um, alley. Sorry? Blind alley, I would suggest. Yes, it's a blind alley and it's 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 got, you know, Nowhere in the whole program are any sensible articulations of the trade-offs uh, even attempted. It's just this kind of bureaucratic quagmire that feeds a whole industry of consultants to no beneficial end, as far as I can see. Um, and all of those things will probably continue to push up the cost of being uh, a listed company in the public eye and subject to the shareholder pressures of public institutional investors, public and institutional investors. Uh, um, so my suspicion is that we will see a great many more private companies um, in, as a proportion of the world's economy before long. I don't think this ESG thing can has got legs. It's, it's amazing how much money is behind it right now, but it's, a, it's destined to fail. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think we we face some kind of market meltdown, some kind of global financial crisis that makes the 07, 08 one look like a child's picnic. Uh, we we probably will see a collapse of fiat currencies. But after all that's done, there will still be markets. There will still be um, instruments that are traded, um, even if some of their values go down to zero and some of the institutions collapse and are not able to be bailed out by the taxpayer as they were in 2008. 
Um, so, yeah, great, great set of questions. What kind of world do we want is the question we should be asking. I think far too much was securitized. The, 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 the chain of connection between the household that owns assets and the ultimate production of the goods and services became too long, too intermediated. And so we had an explosion in agency problems at every step along the way. And I think that describes why the financial services industry became so large, because it's largely a parasitic industry that that sits there in all those at each nexus of the principal agent's problem, making sure that it as agent is extracting an economic rent. And so that was a that was itself something that was destined to come to a grinding halt. And when when we reemerge from all of this nonsense, I imagine it will be with a significantly different configuration of all sorts of markets and institutions. You mentioned the parasitical nature of the financial services industry. It reminds me of um, a book that I read shortly before I started started work in the city, which is uh, The uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. And Sherman McCoy, who's a, a bond trader, who's the, the protagonist of the, of the story, is asked by his, I think his young son, how, how daddy makes his living. And and Daddy explains that basically there's a, a big piece of cake being passed around, and every time it goes into Daddy's hands, a few bits of crumbs fall off, and that's how he earns his living. <laughs> so I thought it was quite a nice <laughs> analogy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. You know, uh, very good. So where do you think people could shelter there um, from the coming storm financially? Do you think gold, silver? Would you look at cryptocurrencies as well, or or and is energy the answer? Should we be looking at uranium or, you know, buying oil calls? It's, I get asked this question a lot and, I, you know, I wish I had better answers for it because then I wouldn't grapple with my own personal portfolio so much. But, I mean, my basic response personally is to get as close to real assets as possible, you know, eliminate as many layers of, of intermediation as you can. Um, so what does that mean for me? Well, I was conveniently already in private equity, which is, you know, one step of of intermediation if you consider the company, but as sitting between me and the and the actual productive assets. Um, but similarly, the things you mentioned, the commodities, the um, land, um, and any any kind of uh, uh, asset that is First of all, real. I should say, when I say real, I mean it in both senses of the word. So, uh, the actual tangible asset itself, or the 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 source of production of a particular service that is consumed, um, but also real in the sense that it's if if the money collapses, the the asset preserves its its real value. And so this would mean for me steering away from a great many financial instruments and towards a, a lot more privately owned and um, uh, yeah, yeah, closely controllable uh, assets and away from vastly intermediated um, instruments, particularly ones that drive through banks and insurance companies. That sounds a bit like cryptocurrencies as well, but I don't Correct, want to put words. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. So I didn't want to put words yeah. in your mouth there. 
I've got a, I've got a couple of percent of exposure there myself. I haven't spent nearly enough time. So definitely on my to-do list is to is to get to grips with some of the more detailed economics of these systems because they're it's it's an money as a concept is an extraordinarily difficult thing. Uh, you know, I, no matter how much time I spend with the very best Austrian economists and people who've studied um, currencies and money and cryptocurrencies, uh, I, I never fail to walk away with the sense that there's actually. Uh, a lacuna. There's a there's a, a, a gaping hole in our knowledge base. Uh, we need a, a, a better analytical framework, a better lens through which to view the concept of money. Or, or as I, I was as was pointed out to me the other day, maybe it's better thought of as the concept of moneyness. Um, I, I, I really do believe that there's something fundamental that has to shift in the field of economics to enable a more useful and predictive framework to emerge um, because even the very best seem to battle to articulate themselves and to make sense of what is to come. I think given the Austrian School of Economics, it would be a complete meltdown of the fiat money system. But the other question there is, if if you have lots of currencies, they are priced in relation to each other. So there has to be one that goes up for something else to go down. It's almost like a seesaw. Um, so it will be which ones survive and which ones, you know, don't, basically. Um, but but there's a great argument for looking at alternatives. And also, I think that's very well put to say you've effectively got to be as close to the asset as possible without any level of disintermediation. Yeah, yeah, I like the way you know, I like the fact you're pointing to the the, the numeraire problem, as it's called in in, in in currencies, that there isn't an absolute reference. Um, that's correct, and it's that's a, a key problem to grapple with for anybody who's trying to understand money. Well, for for five thousand years, it's been gold, gold and silver. Yeah, but it has it, you know, has it really? I I mean, in in well, well, let's say they've never gone away. They've never gone away. But they're also themselves don't have intrinsic value, right? Um, but, but, but for a, so, I would say for a money, you, does, you don't want it to have intrinsic value necessarily. You want you want something that can exist purely in a in the isolation of, of being valued for valued for, for its own for its own um, worth. So, for example, so if we if we look at gold and silver, gold. Is is still the kind of money that central banks accumulate for reasons you know why you'd have to ask the central banks. Whereas silver, by dint of having indus- more industrial uses, is is more of a commodity uh, money, yeah. um, and it, it, so it, it's it's a messier form of of sort of real real asset in that sense because it has industrial cyclicality to it. Well, you know, there, there was the idea of the the technocrats of the nineteen thirties that the, the, the bank or um, sorry. The bank and that Keynes's bank or alternative no, sort of like, like special drawing right type asset. The, the idea there that that the technocrats had was that money would be denominated in energy, mm. and I think there's something to be said for that. And of course, there are echoes of that in the the way in which the Bitcoin system is designed. Um, and you, you, there's this underpin to its value that's spoken about in terms of the amount of energy required to to mine and maintain the system. 
and that's that's it's beyond me to discuss the detail of that but it's it's not a bad call if you it, it has a sort of elegance to it um in the sense that <clears throat> well at the very basic level of physics you know we, we're dealing with transformations between uh, energy and matter so mm. what are you doing in an economy well you're transforming resources into useful products and services um and so energy is kind of would for me be a sensible candidate as an under as a as a, a kind of unit of account, you know, uh, as a store of value. Of course, it has has its challenges. But if you con if you if you ins if your money entitles you to insist on delivery of energy in a variety of forms, that would seem to me to be a a, a very interesting proposition to explore at the very least. I mean, m money in itself is a human construct and it doesn't have to be anything other than something that somebody else will accept as money. But the main problem is there has to be some form of work or value to it so that you can't just create it or print it yourself. There has to be some limitation. Obviously, this has completely been you know, missed by the governments who constantly yeah. say that we that the you know prior to the pandemic there was a, obviously wasn't enough money to pay the nhs and then suddenly they found billions to throw away and and it yeah. just happens all the time um that they do that and they can only do that because they can print their own money but but money in itself could take any form as long as yeah. a people accept it and b um you you can't just create an infinite amount of it and and devalue it um, I think it's an, an interesting point that people make about gold. Um, gold is actually used in industry. There's a, they're, in fact, they're, they're looking at ways of getting the gold out of electronics and mobile phones. So as the gold price goes up, that will be an area that, that you know, will potentially be, you know, helping people to extract mm. the value um, because it is... Silver's the best conductor of electricity. I think gold is um, pretty not good. Far, not far behind. Yeah, yeah, it's not. I mean, it, it is good. I think it's good in terms of heat um, conductivity. So it it's because it's so expensive, it's obviously not used like that. But it is used where it, where it really matters. So it does have an industrial use, in my view. But I, I, I also take the point that it doesn't necessarily have to have that to be a money. It, it just... You know, because it can distort the value of that money, and I, I get that that yeah. um, that element. But the thing with cryptocurrencies is the the amount of work that's done to create the coins in terms of Bitcoin. You know, the amount of computing power that's required. Yeah. I think the only the only thing that would make it perfect in my mind would be if those computational problems were solving a real world problem as well. Because at the moment, it's just the equivalent of digging a hole and then filling it up again to show that you've done some work in order to effectively earn your Bitcoin. Whereas if we had some form of, um, you know, problem that we were trying to, to, to resolve, you know, a medical problem or something cure, like that. Cure, cure for cancer. Cure for cancer that needed amazing amounts of computer power that you could network together to solve that or, you know, anything that, say, would help humanity. I think that would be great if we could just do that. But it has to have some form of um, ability to stop any one actor um, taking it over. And 
you know, Bitcoin does that and the other cryptocurrencies seem to do that. Well, the, the, way, the way I'd look at that is uh, what I see is uh, an, an industry that is the beneficiary of a great deal of highly creative problem solving, lots of creative thinking. And I would expect that all sorts of insights into the nature of money and sort of tricks of the trade of the design of good money monetary systems will be forthcoming in, in years to come. Um, so I, I think it's a very exciting space. I, I, as I said, when we started talking about this, for me, it's, it's something that I want to pay more attention to. I think there will be breakthroughs. There will be, uh, you know, uh, and uh, we, we must remember what creative thinking is about. It's, it, it's you know, when, when Einstein woke up and completely dismantled Newtonian mechanics, nobody knew that there was anything wrong with Newtonian me mechanics. This, this guy comes in from left field with a completely different conceptualization of physics. And I, I think that the same thing is likely to happen when it comes to money. So this conversation is three guys not really even being aware of what the problem is until one of us or somebody else wakes up one morning and says, I've got it. And a new conceptualized, a new conceptual framework emerges. That's kind of what I was pointing to when I said I leave a lot of these conversations with brilliant people like yourselves who, you know, have knowledge that I don't have. And I never walk away feeling like there's a, that, that, we any of us really know what's going on uh, just have that palpable uh feeling and it's it's a it's an exciting uh, and i'm excited by this prospect because i feel that the problem is getting the attention it deserves now where it wasn't maybe in the 1980s or the 1990s now people are getting really serious a lot of great minds are applying their their efforts to understanding what is this money what is this social construct what are its crucial elements, how do we um, preserve such systems from manipulation by the, the, the corrupt or stupid? Um, and it's, it's a good time to be alive in that, in that respect. It's never been so uncertain, but never been quite so exciting at the same time. I mean, we had anyone who was in the financial markets in the late 80s, early 90s, as the euro was being created and saw the volatility in the FX markets. Um, and you were seeing something, in inverted commas, new, and then you were seeing the dawn of the internet, which was new. And that was exciting. Um, but this seems to be on a whole nother level, especially if you're looking at Web 3.0 and the potential for mm. completely decentralized businesses where mm. you, you, you things just cannot be shut down. It's like the internet, <laughs> in the early days of the internet, businesses were... So they had no understanding of what the internet actually was. And some of the big yeah. companies were saying, um, how do we buy the internet? Can we buy it? And it's like, no. And then people saying to their secretary, can you just print off the internet for me? I'll read it later. <laughs> yeah. It's like completely yeah. missing the point of what it, what it actually is. And I, I, that's a very interesting way you've put that, Nick, in terms of, you, you know, we probably don't really know what the new money will be because it's so hard to to conceptualize it um given we're kind of looking backwards and and somebody's going to come out with something that will suddenly make sense it'll be, a game it'll be a game changer yeah yeah i believe so i think your intuitions are completely right about 
the the vast potential for these decentralized forms and um, you know things that are outside of the clutches of of the the ever greedy state. It's it's um, it's, re- it's really it's really funny because Paul and I very first met during a um, effectively uh, a dot com sort of experiment of mine called Moonrock Radio, and we we chatted over that, and that was sort of proto podcast back in two thousand. And two of the quotes that I used in the the business plan for Moonrock, which is basically said an early stage podcast proposition, were both about both about banking. One was attributed to Bill Gates, which was that banking is ne- is necessary, but banks aren't. And the other one I think was attributed to the then CEO of Deutsche Bank, which is what keeps me awake at night. This is this is twenty twenty two years ago. What keeps me awake at night is not our competitors, traditional competitors, but our, but the near banks and the non-banks. Yeah. So whatever happens, I have extraordinary confidence that the banks as we know them today will not exist in five, ten years' time. They'll simply be gone. Some of them may survive in another guise, but they will not be. Because all you get from a bank is basically no, no interest, literally zero interest, and a shit service. That's, that's, that's just a, that's a bug in search of a windshield. Well, the the one the one thing banks do that I think is uh, particularly important, and I haven't seen a solution to that outside of the banking system, is that they evaluate credit. Um, you 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 the, the the contracts you enter into as a bank on the um, the asset side of the balance sheet are notoriously opaque and highly differentiated they're not they're not very vanilla at all even if the legal wordings may be replicated from uh you know from contract to contract the the nature of the underlying risks is is uh terminally unique and so i i'm skeptical about these kind of crowdsourced lending solutions because i that, that i've not seen a convincing answer to the credit underwriting problem and so my sense is that banks will still exist as credit underwriters, but these other roles that they have played and that they've made so much money out of, um, you know, outside of credit extension, um, I think those are looking very weak and about to be taken away from them. So do you, do you feel that the future is less rosy for investment banks or for domestic banking, for branch banking? I, I, think, I think branch banking and community banking is a, would be a great place to be uh, you know, it, it's it's very interesting to see that as the scale of the banks in a system or a country goes up, the, their propensity to lend to small businesses goes down dramatically. And that's very bad because small businesses are, throughout history, the engine of growth. It's where the creativity takes place. It's where the new ideas are formed. Uh, it's where the job creation takes place. And so, you know, you need uh, extension of credit to small businesses and the, the system is creaking right now. Um, too much concentration of of uh, scale uh, back to our centralization problem all over again. Um, and so, yes, I would go short short investment banks and long community banks in, in terms of their ability to make a buck. That's absolutely um, brilliant. That is so brilliant because it means that it's – now you say it, it seems so obvious, but of course it would take somebody to say it to make it sound obvious that a local branch manager knows the area, knows the businesses, understands the nuances much better than a centralized banking system, which can only look at data that 
perhaps doesn't even exist. Um, every yeah. local business will be different depending on the community, the requirements, and how else do you value credit in that regard? Yeah, yeah, it's, there's art to it. Yes, of course, there's science, but there's a lot of art to it. And um, that art is best practiced by people who are who, whose incentives are aligned, who, who are quite close to the ownership of the bank, you know, the shareholders of the bank, and not very remote. If you some massive international bank trying to perform uh, a credit assessment of a, of, of a very small company in a far-flung location is dealing with a, uh, some credit analyst who's, you know, very whose incentive structure is very remote from that of the shareholders of the bank. And, you know, those are the kinds of problems that are more easily resolved in, uh, in, in more locally managed uh, financial services companies. So, yeah, I, I think there will be a lot of, a lot of change there. Um, and it, the, the, it, it'll, it'll come in surprising ways, uh, I think. There will be there will be completely not. It's it's there's this tendency to sit down and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to securitize this and fragmentize this, and there's going to be a fractionalization here and a a crowdfunding story there, and and that the, that type of thinking for me is very uninteresting. It's uh, it almost elaborates problems created by listed markets that have been grappled with and not solved, and you know probably now become more important than they should be, the problems, that is. Um, so I, I would look for uh, crazier, zanier uh, things to be invented that solve problems in, in novel ways. I, I think that's what we can expect from this kind of flourishing, emergent DeFi, uh, blockchain-y uh, kind of world out there. Well, investment banks and branch banking or domestic banking should have been separated anyway. They should never have been put together because the investment... 100%. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It's, it's incredible that, um, you know, the, 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 the laws that were put in place decades ago to protect the, the deposits of the individual... Have completely yeah. the rules just get thrown out of the window. Well, and Glass Glass Steagall got rescinded under Clinton, and I think yeah. probably from lobbying pressure from Wall Street itself. And it became abundantly clear to anyone that was keeping an eye on things that the the whole regulatory system had been had become prone to you know to to capture by the um, the incumbent players. So yeah. the, the regulator was owned by the body it was supposed to be representing and and regulating. You know, th th this is one of the astonishing things for me in COVID is that. I can sit face to face with the finance guy who's completely thinks what you, you know, who would himself say what you've just said that, you know, the, the whole way in which the financial crisis um, was managed illustrated a very high degree of mutual infiltration between the industry and government, you know, and that same person will find it po impossible to acknowledge that that is in fact what's going on, going on with COVID with the mm. pharmaceutical companies and vaccine stakeholders mm. infiltrating governments, medical faculties at university, public health organizations and um, health media. You know, that infiltration is everywhere to be seen. But people who are ready, ready, ready to acknowledge the revolving door between government and the financial services industry, you know, the Securities Exchange Commission and uh, American banks, they already acknowledge that one. But they want to turn a blind eye to the same going on between Pfizer and the FDA, you know. 
Um, this, this is the problem of gross centralization is that that mutual capture, mutual infiltration, that's the important part, it's mutual infiltration, becomes inevitable. And it's why you have to have provisions in your society along the lines of antitrust provisions to prevent or to, 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 you know, to clip ossifying hierarchies, centralizing systems. You have to have mechanisms to clip them. What, if any, governments actually listened to you when you were trying to tell them what was really going on and how they should have really responded to the, the pandemic, inverted commas? Look, a few politicians in various countries have listened, but I can't claim that, you know, we're dealing with a very difficult thing. What's the counterfactual? What would have happened hmm. if that meeting had taken place, if we hadn't written that newspaper article, if we hadn't shouted? What would have happened? Uh, that's almost impossible to answer. I have a sense that we moved the needle in important ways in some places and um, will continue to do so. But it's, it's always a, a, a difficult one. Uh, you feel a lot of the time that you're falling way short of your ambitions. I mean, initially, we wanted to end lockdown within months because we thought it was so obvious that lockdown was a bad idea. You know, boy, were we wrong. But we, we along the way, we, um, we definitely took some of the fangs out of the thing and caused a great many more people to question it and to industries to wake up to the reality that lockdown wasn't going away and therefore to undertake legal proceedings against governments and that kind of thing. We, we definitely played a part in all of that. Um, but the governments themselves were never going to move. There, have to be, there has to be popular uprising and commercial pressure and revenue and election threat and that kind of thing has to be this will be the thing that makes the move. Um, I don't think there are too many people who make their decisions in government based on principle. Nick, I'm mindful that we've gone over an hour, we're an hour and sort of 17 minutes. Um, do you have a cutoff time or can, can we speak, can we continue talking? I have a children's birthday party to get to, actually. Oh, right. um, okay. As, as much as I'm uh, thoroughly enjoying this conversation, you know, very open to having another one again. So, absolutely. You know, um, yeah, maybe we should leave it at one hour 15. And um, with my apology again for being a minute or too late. Um, and uh, yeah, well, Nick, until next time. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Thank you for coming back on the show. If people if people want to find find you, Nick, how do they do that? Or on Twitter, find out more Hudson. about you. Please note, since the recording of this podcast, Nick Hudson has been cancelled from Twitter, and he is now on Getter with the handle at Nick Hudson CT, which stands for Cape Town. So that's at Nick Hudson CT. Panda is still on Twitter, and that's at. Pandata19. Our website, www.pandata.org. Um, yeah, we'll, put a, we'll put a link to those in the show notes. Yeah. And I would just put a quick plug in. We're, uh, we're in the process of uh, launching a, another round of fundraising because all of this work takes uh, resources. Uh, we're a very carefully governed organization with all the things you'd expect to see in place for a public benefit organization, none of the directors earn any money out of it. Um, the, 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 the work, you know, a high percentage of what we raise goes to, goes, to, goes to the actual projects we're involved in. So to the extent that people have 
benefited from Panda's work and feel like they'd like to be part of its ongoing efforts, we would uh, be very grateful if they would consider making a donation on a monthly basis to our, to our work. Absolutely brilliant. And all the details are at Pandata. I, I, I can find that that particular link yeah. to what, yeah, and I'll put that in the show notes too. Nick, thanks Thank again. You very much. Thank you very much. Enjoy, enjoy the party and we'll see you soon. Go well, Tim. Go well, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.